You are listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Mason Jones of Trance and the Charnel House label. How you doing, Mason? Good, good. Thanks very much for, uh, for having me on. Thanks for joining us. We're very, very excited. Uh, we have a mutual friend in the form of Eldon from Allegory Chapel and uh, obviously numerous other mutual friends. Uh, and to sort of celebrate the occasion of this podcast, I guess, Tronics and Helicopter have seen fit to release a trance CD, uh, Ancient History. And that is out today. The day this podcast is dropped. So if you're hearing this, go buy the CD. Perfect. It is a fantastic CD. Mm-hmm. We've been lucky enough to have a copy for about a month or two. So we've been listening to it a lot. And and it's actually funny because Tara's asking, she's like, wait, is this a reissue? I'm like, well, it's not. Some of, some of this stuff has come out, but it's extended versions of... Some stuff that's come yes, out is portions that, of so I'm the not exactly sure what you call that. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> we, maybe we can call it a reinterpretation. There you <laughs> nice. go. I, I like it. Yes. A reinterpretation. Yeah. And it is really cool because we d- we have done a seven inch episode over on the Patreon discussing the trance hydrokaiden allegory chapel. Nice. Seven inch where you get the full show here. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't quite fit it all on the seven inch. So why don't we just start with that? How did that show come about? Because if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that an afternoon show after another show that had already taken place the night before? I I may be wrong on that. I think it was the night before the show that was planned. Um, so I, I had been in touch with, uh, you know, with various people in Japan prior to that. And I actually forget how, how it all came together, but uh, basically... Uh, David Hopkins from Public Bath was coming into San Francisco with Security, uh, the you know, the punk band, and uh, Security was doing a little tour of the U.S., including San Francisco. Uh, and since Alchemy was releasing the Security CDs, uh, JoJo and Junko came along, uh, and I heard that they were coming along. And I was writing for the Zine File Thirteen at the time, uh, so I um, I asked. David, because I was in touch with him, I think it was through him, uh, whether I could uh, come by in the afternoon and just do an interview with Jojo about uh, Alchemy Records and Hijo Kaiden. Uh, so we did that, uh, and it was at uh, my friend's warehouse in the Mission District. It was uh, like Bob and Harvey and various folks around the like Revolver and Banana Fish scene, really. Uh, and that's where they were staying. Uh, for the night. So I went over there in the afternoon, did the interview, uh, and then someone said, Hey, uh, why, why don't we later on just, just have a show here? Why don't you, why don't you guys jam? Nice. Uh, and so Eldon and I were like, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so, so I drove home, got, got my amps, uh, picked up Eldon and his keyboard and stuff and came back to the warehouse and set up. So I don't remember exactly what time we did the show, but it was somewhere around dinner time or something like that. We just mm-hmm. set up in the middle of their, their little warehouse loft area. Uh, and partway through the recording, you can hear, uh, Harvey set off fireworks, uh, firecrackers in, in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's kind of a fun little thing to listen for in the recording. Uh, but that was my first, uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen Hijo Kaidan live, let alone played with them, of course. So quite a surprise. 
So that was wow. that was before your trips to Japan then? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was about a year before uh, my first trip over there. So this was 90, 91 is when we did that show. Yeah. The first track is the first trance show, correct? That was the first live trance show ever. Yeah. Wow. So... Then that's 1991, but trance kind of started in around 88. Is that correct? Yeah, I did my first couple of cassettes in 88. Uh, and the first two were actually under the name Dada Fish. Um, and I, I, I don't know, uh, at some point I kind of decided I wasn't a really fan of that name after all. Um, and, and went with trance uh, for the next few cassettes, which were, yeah, 88, 89, something like that, right around when I moved out to San Francisco. And those are more in the industrial, big blackish kind of realm. So is that your path to getting to the point where you're in the noise world, That that kind of... Big Black, Neubauten kind of stuff? Was that your entry point, I guess? It sort of was, yeah. I, I went back and forth a little bit because the, the Dada Fish cassettes actually are a little bit more experimental because I was lucky enough to uh, to be living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, going to school there. And I owe a lot to whoever the hell was doing the record buying at School Kids Records in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever that was is is a god. Uh, because they were ordering in the import and indie section just ridiculous stuff. Um, I bought the first Carolina LP in the box oh, wow. with like all the little rabbit turds and other stuff in there. Right, uh, right, and, right. <laughs> uh, and through that, you know, in there was the subterranean catalog. And so I started order, mail ordering stuff from uh, from Steve, who I later got to know super well because Eldon was working at Subterranean and it all mm-hmm. kind of connects. Uh, they were ordering stuff from RR Records, so I bought the Master Slave Relationship LP and started writing to Debbie, uh, and we were corresponding a lot. And so it was the cassette and noise underground culture thing kind of coming together. You know, everybody back then put their addresses in their releases, and so I would write a letter and we would start trading stuff, and you just got to know people that way, and it was really, really great. So they also had the... Um, the unsound magazine and the final unsound with the double cassette in it. So problemist and all that stuff. And so I was listening to all of that uh, and buying, you know, the first swans LP and test department and all, all of that. So it was this combination of stuff. And when I started recording, a lot of it was because of the cassette uh, that I was ordering from uh, you know, Debbie was doing her distribution and Ron and all of the others. And so it was this weird combination of like listening to this noisy indie rock and listening to this weird experimental stuff. And so that was a mishmash of what I was doing originally. And that's so cool. I mean, Subterranean was such an important thing for for this, especially this time. I mean, was yeah. it, 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 it's kind of almost, I think we, we talk about Triple R a lot, mm-hmm. but Subterranean was as important at the time, especially on the West coast. And it feels like that was a big connection to Japan as well. It, it was. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when I first moved out here, uh, I just started meeting people at shows and four, five, five, tenth was doing shows back then. And, uh, so I got to know all of those folks and, um, I forget exactly how I, I ended up going down to subterranean and, and talking with Steve and the others, uh, but you know, Eldon was working there. Grux from Carolina was working there, so it was definitely like this this place. 
um, I would just go there after work and just hang out for the rest of the day and you know, talk about stuff and look through the shelves and find weird stuff. Um, but he was one of the early ones to start um, distributing some of the Japanese releases. And after I started going over there, we kind of connected Subterranean more um, with, with more and more labels as well. And uh, so the other thing is that because I was able to kind of hang out there, talk to Steve, uh, see the distribution side of things, that's really when charnel music went from being this thing where I was just dubbing cassettes and mailing them around to people to an actual kind of label. Um, and, and I owe a lot to being able to talk to Steve about the distribution side of things and know that, you know, hey, if I press this thing up, can I just bring some copies over? He said, oh, sure. Uh, and then you know, I connected with other people through that as well. So you know, having that connection and knowing that you know other people are releasing weird little stuff too, so why don't I go ahead and do that? And I pressed up the first CD and you know, Subterranean helped a ton. And you know, all, all the other people uh, around kept me from completely screwing that up, you know, doing the first CD. I didn't know what I was doing from mastering the artwork to distribution or anything else. So it's, it's all down to sharing information. Yeah. I mean, you know, still, it's, it's still a question mark, honestly. <laughs> I feel like we're well, still just figuring it out. <laughs> I mean, now it's completely different. And, the, and I, you know, I'm actually getting ready to press up some, uh, some LPs later this year. Oh, really? Uh, Cause apparently I, don't have anything else to waste my money on. But <laughs> <laughs> what are you? What are you? What are you working on? Uh, old stuff a, or new stuff? Yeah, uh, on well, both new and old. Sort of depending cool. on how you think about it. Uh, so a new solo noise record that I'm getting ready to do an old live show. Um, so my my sort of psych band, New Menace Eye, which is basically usually me and, and Mike Schoen on drums. Uh, we played a show in 2007 in Tokyo with Damo Suzuki. Uh, so he cool. he did the vocals and uh, Steve oh, Ito cool. over there did percussion. And so uh, that was recorded. There was a label that was going to release it in 2009. The label kind of shut down before it came out uh, and it kind of got forgotten. So I'm editing it down to LP length uh, to put that out. Uh, and then I've got a couple of other things that I'm working on. I'm not sure which ones are going to be ready first, but my plan is to kind of do three or four LPs just as a batch because dealing with Pressing up distribution, everything else in batches is a lot easier than, than one-offs. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll find out whether there's uh, any purpose to labels these days, uh, <laughs> other than you know sharing a Bandcamp site together. <laughs> Subterraneans well, seem to also really bridge the gap between the industrial realm and harsh noise and sort of the punk realm with all like really everything kind of underground fell under the subterranean umbrella, uh, not to make a pun, but really it, it's always surprising to me when you see the catalog and the type of records they pressed and especially the stuff they distributed that was really focused in, in had a, had a foot in all these different ponds, I guess, where yeah. I don't, th I can't think of another place that had that kind of wide of a focus for this kind of stuff that crossed these boundaries. Like, you know, stocking Factrix and New Order records and also, um, <clears throat> you know, Mertzbauer records or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Steve was you know, very open-minded early on. Um, and I think a lot of that also was the San Francisco scene at the time. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, punk was huge here. And you know, not maybe not huge in record sales, but in 
uh, importance. Uh, you know, it was before my time living here for sure, but you know, the Mabuhe was was the thing, right? And uh, so Subterranean was very much in that, releasing you know, Flipper and all the you know the great old stuff. Uh, and then as as time went on, you know, Steve kept his ears open and you know brought in all of this other great stuff. I mean, Factrix, you know the, the Shine Top album was huge for me. That's it's an amazing album. Yeah. Um, I guess moving to San Francisco and that was in, in 88, 88, uh, SRL was active. That was one of the reasons I moved here. Okay. Honestly. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I do tech work, uh, to, to pay the bills. Uh, so even back then, San Francisco and the Bay area was kind of the place. So that was you know one reason that I moved here. It's kind of the reason I was able to, to move here at the time. Uh, but uh, the Industrial Culture Handbook is why I moved here. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, you, awesome. You, you look through that and there's, you know, there's Monty and there's SRL and you know, there's research themselves. And there's uh, all this ridiculous stuff happening in San Francisco. And it was really funny because we moved here in August of 88, uh, first week of August. On 8-8-88, there was a show with Nam. Uh, was it Carla LeVay? And we we managed to make it to that show. It was like two days after we moved here. Wow. Uh, so that, you know, that was like, all right, yeah, we're in the right place. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. Uh, and then a couple of months later, there was this event at um, SF Photo Works, I think it was, uh, South of Market. Uh, it was an evening with research. And it was just, you know, go and, and hang out and uh, Vale and AJ were, were going to talk about you know, the research books and kind of what they were up to and everything. Uh, and uh, Mark Pauline was there because he and AJ were together at the time. And at the end, they said, you know, we're always looking for people to kind of help out uh, and, and volunteer and you know, give us a hand with stuff. So I you know, went up afterwards to AJ and said, yeah, what can I do? Um, and it, it turned out that people often volunteered and then like after a month or so realized that this is actually not really very exciting work per se. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like any other work. It's you know, proofreading or doing whatever you can do. Um, but uh, my, uh, my wife and I and some other friends ended up helping out with research for quite a while. And then I uh, ended up you know, doing various things, uh, proofreading modern primitives, which they were working on at the time. And then because of that connection, uh, SRL had a show coming up in 89 um, under the freeway in South of Market, San Francisco. Uh, so uh, Eldon and I and uh, Rick Reese, who is doing a lot of interesting music work around San Francisco and some other people ended up doing sound for that show. Is that the tape that's on that you released? Yeah, the Illusions of Shameless Abundance tape. Yeah, I did. Cool. So, so I did the soundtrack cool. for that one, and then for Carnival of Misplaced Devotion up in Seattle, uh, and then we're planning to do the soundtrack for the show in Barcelona in '91, I think it was. Uh, and due to Gulf War, screwed up flights, and all sorts of other things, uh, I got halfway to Barcelona and didn't quite make it. <laughs> Damn. Um, but yeah, that. Uh, you know, that soundtrack and the, the tape was really fun because what we did was we uh, recorded a whole bunch of SRL's machines. We just went down to the warehouse, which was right next door to Subterranean. It was in the same uh, warehouse area. Uh, recorded a bunch of the machines, and then I edited snippets and made tape loops. Uh, 
10 second, 20 second, 30 second tape loops of the machines. And we set up with uh, people running around the site during the show with microphones going live, being processed through, and then tape loops running. And we had four tape decks stacked up on this table during the show. Halfway through the show, two of the tape decks stopped working, and I, we were too busy to figure out why. At the end of the show, we went and took a look, and it was because the fire from the pianos that they lit was too hot, and it melted the back of the tape decks <laughs> and broke them. So, uh, SRL problems. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tape decks are apparently not built for that sort of punishment. <laughs> you have worked with Eldon a lot. When did you guys meet up? How did that relationship begin? Uh, you know, I couldn't say for sure where we met. Uh, probably at a show at 455. Uh, you know, and then he was working at Subterranean and, and all that. But you know, definitely he was, you know, he was busy in San Francisco when I showed up uh, and, you know, helped me connect with a lot of people. You know, obviously, you know, he was part of the very first trance show because when I looked around and said, all right, gonna going to start doing some shows. If I do these solo, am I really equipped to make it interesting enough? And I, I wasn't sure yet. Uh, so, you know, being able to collaborate with somebody and kind of flesh things out really helped a lot. We did that show. We played at uh, KFJC together. Uh, and then kind of continued on. And, and Trance added a few other people um, here and there. Uh, Annabelle from Amber Asylum played with us for you know, uh, for a while, a, a number of shows, including one at uh, Scott Harford's uh, Seven Hertz Space. Uh, actually, Eldon, uh, I spoke with last night, and he remembers uh, you meeting when you went to play a show at KPFA. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, probably uh, John Gullick's No Other Radio Show. Okay, yeah. Oh, who John Gullick uh, painted that portrait of Eldon that's on the cover of the Demimon Voices uh, yep. gross tape, which I just reissued as a CD. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a great one. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, No Other Radio is actually another early San Francisco treasure, right? Um, it was Tuesday nights at midnight, uh, and I was working a lot of the time. So what I would do is... Uh, just stick a 90 minute tape in an auto reverse tape deck hit record at midnight go to sleep and then you know the next morning it would it would have recorded the show and i'd listen through it tuesday night <laughs> at midnight that's the same time as damien romero's psychotechnics is on uh yeah. here at kxlu actually <laughs> good time slot for experimental uh, radio <laughs> yeah i was gonna say maybe it's uh, it's a tribute <laughs> the, the, the original because yeah. you know, john gullick is, is like responsible for you know playing you know so many people for the first time and, uh, you know, spreading the word about stuff. So cool. So was it uh, was it clear to you that guitar was going to be your main in, no, your main instrument, or did it just kind of happen that way? What 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 is your relationship with guitar? Like a lot of people, when I was a kid, I. <clears throat> played various different instruments and, you know, frustrated my parents no end by, you know, getting really into one for two months and then, you know, ignoring it uh, and coming back to it later and, and so on. But guitar was the one where I, I took lessons for a good while. So I sort of learned to properly play guitar, uh, folk guitar and classical guitar. Uh, and then I just kind of ignored guitar for a while until I was in college and kind of picked it up again because uh, I was living in the dorm and some people were like, you know, just jamming every once in a while. So I grabbed the guitar again, um, bought a nice guitar from a friend. Uh, and that was your usual, like, silly college, you know, 
don't know how to play blues jams kind of things right um so then when i started kind of discovering the cassette culture and these interesting sounds you know guitar was the instrument i had so uh i bought a four track with my second paycheck after college and started recording. I uh, bought a cheapo mic, seemed to never throw anything away. I still have that four track. I still have that mic. <laughs> oh yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I still have all my masters too. So I've been, uh, you know, the, the reissues I've been doing on Bandcamp have, have been from that. The four track doesn't rewind or fast forward anymore, but it plays. So uh, it's cool. <laughs> uh, but, you know, guitar was the instrument I knew. It's the instrument that I had around. So I started playing with that. And that's that's also partly why a lot of my early cassettes are more sort of, you know, big black and swans rock noise kind of stuff. Uh, you know, because that's what I could do. It's, you know, I could afford a really bad distortion pedal like everybody else and uh, give that a try. On my first tapes, uh, the drums were uh, a mic inside a cardboard box. Um, playing drums on it, yeah. I'd set that up in our apartment and, and, and played that. Uh, and then uh, you know, test department and others uh, had some nice metal percussion, so I could do that. I don't need drums, so I started doing that and just you know figuring things out. Eventually, bought a Yamaha RX15 drum machine, uh, which played a prominent part in early tapes, and I still have that too. After my first couple of, of cassettes, I started branching out a little bit and. Uh, Shortly after moving to San Francisco, I stumbled on someone who was selling uh, an Insonic Mirage sampler. Uh, so I picked that up uh, and figured it out and started sampling metal percussion uh, and things like that, uh, as well as using some of the samples that came with it, orchestral things and all of that. And so heavily influenced by my favorite album of all time, Coil's Force Rotivator. Uh, yes. So my, what is it, fourth, third or fourth cassettes. Uh, and then some CDs after that were much more orchestral, industrial sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I started finding things like Autopsia and uh, some other bands at the time who were doing some really interesting kind of industrial, experimental, but with some symphonic sounds in it. And so I was doing a lot of experimentation with that, too. Uh, was... But then, you know, I figured out the, the sampler was great for noise, too. Well, <laughs> when did you decide to go on your first tour? My first tour was in either 90 or 91, um, booked by the infamous Manny Feiner. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah. Actually, it's funny because that's actually Everyone a name that, well, you know what it is funny because that's actually a name that hasn't come up, honestly, really hasn't come up much or often on the podcast, but he yeah, was absolutely uh, a character i think is a is a good word to use but you know he booked so much stuff and yeah. uh, one vhs release we talk about a lot is the huck finn vhs and he is yeah. can be spotted on that vhs yeah but yeah. but yeah especially in the 90s and he also ran sss yep yeah which yeah. is a fantastic label yeah. so definitely was he was a noise character in the 90s so he he booked your first tour yeah, yeah. Um, so it was from Chicago to <clears throat> to Boston. Um, and so in Chicago, I played with Jim O'Rourke. Um, awesome. So we did a guitar duo um, at Lounge Axe in, uh, in Chicago. Uh, and then um, my, and my wife came with me on the tour, uh, and we, uh, we stayed at 
Jim's house with his parents. A nice setup in the basement with uh, nice. some some classic Midwestern paintings on the walls and a great breakfast in the morning. Heck yeah! <laughs> uh, that was that was really nice because I had uh, just put out I guess it should have been just after the CD uh, the Jim O'Rourke and KK Null CD that I released uh, right around that time. Cool. Uh, so yeah, the Chicago show uh, played a show in Detroit at a record store there which is where I first met the Gravatar guys. Um, and then while I was there, uh, after the show, we went over to uh, Warren DeFever's place from Princess Dragon Mom, and his name is Alive, yeah. uh, and uh, recorded uh, a long track with Jeff Walker from Gravatar there that showed up on one of the trans CDs uh, later on. Gravi- so that was a lot of fun. Living in Michigan in the 90s, Gravatar was one of the early things that I sort of discovered and found around the record shops there too. Although I think they kind of stopped playing live by the time I had gotten into them in the, in the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Harold was in the first lineup and then it kind of shifted and Mike Jeff's brother joined and they, they toured a little bit more at that point, but yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a long period of time. Um, but it was, it was kind of funny that I sort of got introduced to more of the Michigan, uh, experimental scene after I moved out of Michigan. Because <laughs> uh, that's kind of when Gravatar and Wolf Eyes and, and all those folks really started up. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, John was at that show uh, that I played in Detroit. What, uh, do, you remember what record, do you remember what record store it was? <sighs> Aaron's was, or not Aaron's, it was it, uh, Sam. It was, it was like was Sam's? Record Collector. Oh, Record Collector. Okay. I think it was. That sounds right. Yeah. Well, Davin worked at Record Collector at least when I was living there, so that that might well have been a there's that, in Livonia. That could have been the connection there. Yeah, that's where yeah. The, I've talked about numerous times that MSBR government alpha like in store was in in uh, what, 99. So wouldn't surprise me if wow, you had yeah. also <laughs> played at Record Collector. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So that you know that tour was really fun, and it kind of finished up in um, uh, in. Boston was there a show in Boston? Maybe the last show was the one uh, in Lowell that uh, that Ron Lassard oh, uh, yes. helped set up. So it was uh, Emil Bulio <laughs> and, and me. Man, what a great first tour! Yeah, that's it. Great. Was yeah, it was, yeah. It was a lot of fun. It sounds very like reasonably spaced as well. Yeah, we flew to Chicago, rented a car, and just kind of drove across, and you know didn't. Didn't want to be in a hurry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you How grow up in Michigan or? Yeah. Were you, okay. yeah. Ann Arbor. Ah, I did not realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan's been responsible for uh, for uh, an amazing amount of, of great experimental stuff. <laughs> I mean, Hunt, Hunting Lodge, got to call them out. One of my favorites. Oh, absolutely. Um, and we just talked about them a little bit on our uh, Splendor Geometrico episode. Shane English had that, that shame exposure record in his uh, recent listening. And I had just picked up that and the shack LP from easy listening. So another recommendation for those. And of course, will got a really nice reissue on vinyl from Deus a few years ago, uh, sounding much better than the dark vinyl picture disc. Actually, if that's the only way you've heard <laughs> that record. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hunting lodge stuff often suffered from, uh, uh, Wanting more mastering. <laughs> How soon after this tour do you head to Japan? This is just like a year later. Cool. Yeah, and that I was think, with yeah. Eldon the first time? It was, yeah. Um, 
we we had a friend Stephen Holman um, who was doing a theater of this crazy theater project uh, called Theater Carnival uh, down in LA, and uh, then he moved up here and. I don't remember exactly how, but he managed to wrangle uh, like a week-long residency at a little theater in Tokyo. <laughs> uh, and we had started doing this uh, weird performance music noise thing together called Torture Chorus. And uh, he had the idea of, well, if, if he and, um, and his partner Clam who was also part of Torture Chorus, uh, we're going to be over in Tokyo for this theater thing. Maybe we could do some Torture Chorus shows in Japan too. Uh, and that turned into Jojo saying, yeah, we'll, we'll do a tour over there and it'll be part of the Optimism um, 92 uh, sort of you know, tour uh, package. So you know, then Steve came to Elton and I and said, yeah, you want to go to Japan and do these shows? <laughs> Obviously, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's how it worked. They they went over there first and um, did a bunch of the theater carnival shows, uh, and then Elton and I came over. You know, a few days later, uh, Jojo picked us up at the airport and drove us in, uh, visited his card shop because he was doing the sports cards at the right. time. Amazing. Noise from trading cards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which happened to be across the street from uh, Modern Music, the home of PSF. Right? So like, you know, we, we landed, we drove from the airport, we uh, parked near his shop, and we went to Modern Music and spent money. <laughs> uh, which is you know, just amazing. So that was when I met uh, Ikezumi from, uh, from PSF as well. Wow. Wait, and do you speak Japanese? After my second trip there, I started studying Japanese. Yeah. So I studied studied it uh, pretty heavily here for about five years. Um, So I can get around reasonably well. It's super rusty right now. But what I found is when I go back over there after a a day or two, it kind of clicks again and I can can get around pretty well. Yeah. Because after the first couple of visits, uh, I felt like... um, I love this place and I want to spend more time here, but I'm afraid to go too far from my friends because if I get lost, no one will ever see me again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to be able to just wander around yeah. and, and you know, go to go to record stores myself and kind of you know, figure things out and, and find stuff. Um, so I felt like you know, if I'm going to be going over there, uh, I should learn the language, obviously. And I love languages. So yeah, I, I did that and being able to just, you know, go over there when I want, when I want to and, and you know, I actually started on some of the trips, just taking the subway to a random station, getting off, wandering around and seeing what I could find. Um, and it's, it's just really nice. I love it over there. Yeah, Tokyo is my, my main spot, but um, I anyway, wandered around a lot of it. I really appreciated your Japanese pronunciation guide in the back of Ongaku Otaku. <laughs> I was like, yes. Good. And even references saying like what ha- the level of English within other zines, um, much appreciated. <laughs> cool, cool, yeah, yeah. That zine is incredible. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any copies, any original copies. But there, there, is, the first issue mm-hmm. is up. We were able to to find the first issue on some some site. I yeah, thought it was on I, Charnel's blog. Was it on your? Yeah. Was it on your? Did you put it up? 
Um, I didn't. Someone else did, and then oh. I think I posted linking to it. Well, thought, that's oh, what that's it is. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that is what it is. We get we got it through there, and and it is. It it's they're great scans. This the your so this this would come out after your second trip over mm-hmm. to Japan, right? Because you're kind of. Your tour diary type thing was the second trip, right? Sounds probably about right. Yeah, I you know it's it's hard to keep track of the trips over there. Right. It it reads like I mean we were drooling and just we couldn't believe. It. I mean it's it's oh I'm hanging out with Mayuko oh my and God. Hiroshi and then then Mon Brutes came to pick us up and then Ob meets us in a suit. And takes us to to shrines. I mean, we're just like. And then the seed oh. mouth interview. <laughs> the, I'm just like, no. Oh, dude, that seed mouth uh, interview seed is, mouth. is so incredible. It's, it's so that picture of him, and then that the interview is is so perfect, so short and perfect. And it's he was absolutely quite a absolutely comprehensive. Um, yeah. Could you really, you know, have a, a wide variety of tastes, and and we appreciate that. Well, that was one of my goals with with Ongaku Otaku. Really, was um, you know, I I can't represent entire countries in the music scene, obviously, but the more than just one niche, right? Uh, and you know, one of the reasons I started my band Subarachnoid Space was to be able to help set up shows for the non-noise bands who were coming over. Um, so when you know, Shizuka would come over, or Angel and Heavy Syrup, or one of the others. Um, we could play with them. They would have gear to use, uh, and it was easy for them. Because uh, when we went over there, all the clubs in Japan ha- already have amps and drum kits and everything there. You know, you don't need to lug that stuff around because nobody owns a car, right? So it's it's super convenient. So I wanted to make it easy for them to come over here and not have to you know, feel like they have to rent amps or anything like that, right? Oh, that's, that's a awesome. really nice goal to have <laughs> with that project. Yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly starting a band and being able to lend out gear isn't the, isn't the only reason to do such a thing. So uh, how did Subarachnoid Space come about? Um, so I was, you know, I was doing the noise stuff, but I was also feeling like I wanted to play live more. Um, and I, I, I wanted to kind of branch out a little bit and reactivate that aspect of my guitar playing because um, when I started doing the real noise and experimental stuff on guitar I sort of uh, unlearned purposely a lot of what I knew about playing guitar uh, and you know, interestingly then I, I started seeing how some other folks had done that particularly Keiji Haino and Fushitsusha um, where you know, he would even uh, teach the bass players how to not play bass properly in order to feel the music and and not do something predictable, uh, so you know, not playing guitar normally was something I'd been working on for a long time, and, and making the guitar sound like anything but a guitar. So then, going back to playing rock type music, I wanted to take that and bring it back towards rock, but not all the way. Uh, and I was you know, listening to Fushitsusha, uh, Skullflower. And those sorts of bands, and and that's what I was going for was a kind of psychedelic improvised band that could play with rock bands, but wasn't rock. And that's what we were really going for um, when when we first started out the first couple of albums. Uh, so the first album was just uh, you know jams that I uh, we would get together. I'd set up the dat player hit record and we would just play uh, and then you know some of it would sound good enough to use and 
some of the, the balance would be totally off and it would be crap. But uh, I could edit out the, the good stuff uh, and put that together on a, on a CD. And then ironically, um, I, I pressed up that CD and Relapse Records was doing some distribution for me. Uh, and Bill at Relapse uh, heard that first CD and said, are you doing more of this? Can we put one out? <laughs> so, well, damn, yeah. <laughs> That's unexpected. Um, so uh, so we actually you know, did a three-album deal with Relapse uh, for the next three subarachnoid-based albums. And as, as we evolved, you know, the, the kind of tastes of everybody changed, uh, as bands do. We changed drummers partway through. We changed bass players several times. Um, and it, it evolved. And eventually, um, yeah. that was... First one was in 96, and eventually in like 2002, I guess it was, uh, the band had shifted to being much more, much less improvised and much more uh, almost metal, you know, sort of sort of in that drone noise metal vein, uh, which I, I found I, I liked listening to, but I didn't really like playing that much. And it kind of felt right for me to say, you know what, you know, maybe, you know, Maybe I should move on and I want the band to continue. You guys take the name, you guys keep it going. Uh, and it worked out perfectly, actually, because then uh, Melinda and Chris both moved to Portland right at that time. I'm like, awesome. You know, you, you guys go to Portland, keep it going, and it's all good. So that's that starts your relationship with Bill and Relapse. Yep. That. Yeah, the, the, the release sub-label. Right, Relapse, right, right. That was Bill's. Well, Absolutely, and oh, obviously yeah. incredibly important. I yeah. I want to go slightly back in time before we go to that. I just kind of wanted to talk about the the magazine a little more. When did you get the idea? Why are zines important? And just what what was your experience like putting together four issues of this incredible zine? Well, you know, back then zines were were incredibly important, right? And I, I was connecting with a lot of people with zines because I was doing the label uh, and I was sending them stuff for review and I was, you know, I was doing advertising in them. Uh, and so I've got a huge uh, soft spot for zines like Music from the Empty Quarter. Um, you know, if you consider Force Exposure a zine, um, you know, Force Exposure was just hugely influential. Um, and I was writing for one called File 13 for a good long time. Uh, that's where my interview with Jojo, that we talked about earlier, showed up. Uh, and I did a number of others there. And after I went over to Japan for the first few times, uh, I was you know, spending all the money I had on albums and bringing them home uh, and telling people about them. And uh, you know, eventually it seemed like, well, you know, I could I can keep telling my friends about them, but I could probably tell more people about them. I was reviewing them for File 13, but I wanted to do more than reviews, and I wanted to, to maybe spread the word more um, and you know, just tell people about all the cool stuff that was happening over there. Uh, I was still helping research with their stuff um, at the time. You know, it, it, you know, still know Vale really, really well, and you know, what he did for you know, the underground around here can't be overstated. And you know, I had learned a little bit about publishing from Vale and AJ and research. Uh, oddly enough, my uh, parents have done some publishing. So I knew a little bit there as well. Uh, my wife is a writer. And so I, I tend to have this sometimes foolish tendency to say, well, 
why don't I just try doing this thing and maybe it'll work out. Uh, so why don't I try doing a magazine? Maybe it'll work out. Um, and I had, I'd learned graphic design just from doing all the label stuff, um, from completely relying on the kindness of friends to get the uh, Arrhythmia CD layout figured out because I knew nothing about color separations or any of that stuff at the time uh, to you know, being able to, to do reasonable uh, layout on a computer at the time. So I thought, okay, I, I can, I can give this a try and uh, just started collecting material for the first one to see what I might be able to do. Uh, you know, could I, could I actually put together enough interesting stuff to make a magazine worthwhile? Uh, and you know, did the first one, I uh, did the second one and, and decided to, to be really dumb and pay for a full color cover, uh, <laughs> which looks, it looks great, right? No regrets. Uh, but it's not really a sensible financial decision. <laughs> uh, and then the distribution, again, uh, friends put me in touch with people. And at the time, Tower Records was still a major thing. Yeah. And mm -hmm. The, in, in the zine world, the magazine buyer for Tower is legendary uh, because he would take anything interesting and it would immediately go out to all of those Tower stores. And he single-handedly enabled a lot of people to publish magazines because of that. Um, so when you went into a Tower magazine or Tower Records and you, you look in the magazine section and it wasn't just boring magazines, right? There was yeah. quality, interesting, weird stuff in there. That's why. Um, wow. So it was, it was great. Um, and, you know, Tower was kind of local here in Sacramento. Um, so it was fairly easy to ship stuff over there from here. Wow. In my town I lived in, in, in 1990 to 92. 293 we had a, a tower records next to a tower books next to a tower video and you could they were they were connected with like uh you know the anti-shoplifting things but you could walk through yeah. you could walk into one door but walk through all yeah. of them and like i rented halber mensch at tower video that was like yes. when i saw that for the first time you know i used to buy the zines i bought i, I must have bought my first like robert anton wilson book or something at uh, tower books because yeah. it was it was there and they had all this crazy stuff. I'm certain I bought my first throbbing gristle CD at tower records like that. It, it really in the nineties, they were, they were a dominant force and they were actually underground and, and tried to support stuff that you couldn't find elsewhere. You didn't see these CDs in, in any of the, you know, Sam goodies and Camelot musics of the time, at least. Totally. Yeah. Even more important. They, they weren't underground. They were incredibly huge, but, yeah. what, yes. but, but what's important is that, they shut they had a light on the underground and and for us we mm -hmm. had tower but honestly for us it was more borders and but same thing the borders in my suburban town carried seconds magazine and oh here's an interview with jonathan kennedy and here's an ad for japanese american noise treaty yep. What are all these names? Oh my God, there's a band called CCCC. My 16, 17 year old brain couldn't even comprehend it. And I'm only reading this stuff. So, the, especially in the 90s, what I see is the importance of these major companies shining a light on the underground, which then the amount of people who that. It, all this stuff got exposed to is innumerable and you can't even really understand that. So this, which brings us to 
relapse and release and you are mm-hmm. have your hand in Japanese American Noise Treaty. So this is this is comes about because of your relationship with Bill Yerkowitz, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was his idea to uh, to put together a compilation, and uh, I don't remember anymore how it came to be. Like, let's do a, a Japanese American thing. Um, the one thing I do remember is is the initial idea of you know let's let's do a, a noise war. I'm like, mm, nah, no, we are not at war, dude. We are the best <laughs> of friends. So this is a treaty. Yeah. I oh, so, oh, oh wow no wow that's amazing. But That's I loved cool. that. I love and yes. I of course. The, we the posters literally above we, our bed. Yeah, we sleep yeah, under yeah, it yeah. every I mean, night, and that yeah. was just just that image and the treaty. It's it's so yeah, amazing. And, they, and, and their designer came up with that, uh, and it, uh, that was brilliant. I love that. Mm-hmm. But you you assisted with the American side, or you assisted with both CDs? Both. Yeah, I oh, pulled together okay. both. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Bill, Bill had some suggestions for uh, for the US one uh, a bit, but no no real surprises. I think I think he's the one who was in touch with Pika. Uh, and maybe a couple of others, and obviously his Damonex project in there. Other, other than those things, were you given free reign to curate what was on the comp? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Great. Uh, there were, well, you know, thank the, you. The, there were the obvious, the, the obvious choices, uh, of course. Uh, but then you know, being being able to bring in a, a few of the you know, maybe lesser known folks, you know, third organ nobody really knew at, at the time, um, contagious orgasm as well was more underground and one of my favorites you know not not noise noise not hard noise but just you know amazing surreal sound is, is kind of how i think about that one. Oh, we're huge, we're huge yeah. fans yeah big, we love well, and, and third well. organ too of course oh but, man yeah. third, you know i mean so i different i mean we're 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 on record as saying third organ might actually be the harshest of yes. harsh noise he <laughs> it's, might it's punishing it's you know, look, you know, we, we can split hairs, but he's definitely up there. I yeah. mean, I mean, he's definitely up there. It's we always say it's the one episode when we did. We actually had to take a break in between sides. We actually had to like <laughs> set back and like, yep. Oh, well, sometimes let's give those you high tones, yeah. you know, you lose a lot of the mids. But, but so <laughs> now, you know, you're touring. It's 92, 93. You're in Japan. You're doing the zine. And now you're. You're you're working with with Bill and relapse and release. I mean, do do you recall the feeling of these things, the the growing and the and things getting out there more? I mean, was it it just had to have been such an exciting time? A- absolutely, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> once I started doing the the magazine, um, more people reached out to me. Before that, it was uh, just you know, going over there and meeting more people, you know, I, I go over there and do a tour and meet some new folks at the shows. Uh, and, you know, I knew some of the uh, labels and distributors over there. Uh, and I started doing manufacturing and distribution for a couple of labels over there. Right. So, uh, Nulls, Nux organization releases and Mayuko's, uh, endorphin factory. I was doing the manufacturing and distribution over here for oh, them because cool. it was much, it was, it was much cheaper than doing it in Japan. so so is all of this stuff starting to to grow and connect there and to some extent the the japanese economy was also a major part of it uh the japan in the 90s was doing incredibly well uh and it made records really damn expensive for those of us going over there but uh it made it possible for more people to come over here and tour um it's it's really kind of unfortunate that i think after about 
I want to say maybe 99 or so, you really saw a, a drop off in artists from Japan coming over here and touring. Uh, and I don't know exactly what led to that, but some of it was sort of the economy turning and things got more expensive um, for, for people coming over here. Uh, but there was, there was a lot of growth. Alchemy was really, really busy. Uh, PSF was really, really busy. You know, a bunch of labels over there. Uh, you had you know, Public Bath doing their thing. You had you know, a lot of magazines over here. You know, Hongaku Otaku, but also Banana Fish. Uh, mm -hmm. 046 Venture 2 was really uh, helping raise uh, awareness of a lot of bands over there. Uh, I think I actually found out about uh, Fushitisha first through uh, through Force Exposure because um, they you know, they reviewed the uh, uh, 2-3 uh, live uh, album uh, and the, that's a brilliant review because it, it's one of the most important records for me ever. So uh, things things kept growing and more, more people were getting in touch with me and sending me things uh, and so I was able to connect them with more people who were setting up shows. The, the network of organizers in the U.S. was also growing so if someone got in touch with me and said you know, I I want to try to tour in America. How can I do that? I, I could literally write back to them with a list of people and say, talk to this person in LA, this person in New York, this person in Chicago, this person in Michigan. And there was a, a circuit, right? So it was, you know, from what I've heard, it's, it's a lot like uh, the late seventies punk scene where there were known people in spots around the country. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese artists also had a, a nice package deal. Uh, I forget which airline it was in, in Japan. They could buy a, a single ticket or a sort of set of tickets that would let them stop in three cities in the U.S. Uh, on the same ticket for kind of a package price. So, so you'd see a lot of tours where people, you know, tours, quote unquote, where people would uh, come to go to Seattle and then they'd fly to San Francisco. Someone would drive them to, to L.A. They'd fly from L.A. to New York or Chicago, play there and then fly home. Right. So wow. they'd figure out. They figure out how many shows can we do with three stops because it was a cheap package flight. So it, it helped. Yeah, all, all, all of those things kind of come together and, and make it possible for people to, to come over and, uh, and tour and kind of spread the word. Were you involved in the in the Mersbau Masana uh, shows on the West Coast at all? No, not not really. Uh, <clears throat> Mersbau was Mersbau was always sort of a on his own thing. Uh, the the very first time I went over to Japan with with uh, you know, Torture Chorus and Eldon, um, Eldon had been in more touch with Masami than I had actually. So uh, the first night, I think it was the first night or two we were in Tokyo, we stayed with Masami. Oh, cool! Uh, and you know he's sort of legendary for being very hard to understand whether you're Japanese or not because um, he speaks very very quietly. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's very hard to read. Uh, I, I I was never really able to quite get his his feelings about things um, because he's just very 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 reserved, very hard to read. Um, and when he would tour, he would kind of just you know do it himself. Uh, right. 
you know, initially I was helping kind of the alchemy artists, you know, the alchemy associated artists, uh, Ijakai and Solania, Masona and so on. Uh, and then kind of expanded a little bit. Um, I have not yet mentioned Japan overseas, which well, I And that to. is actually something we did want to bring up. Actually, a, yeah. lis- a listener mm-hmm. uh, also was wanted to talk about, wanted you to talk about Japan overseas. So let's yeah. do that now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's obviously incredibly yeah. important. I'm trying to think of whether whether I met yeah, it was on that first it was on that first tour, uh actually, uh, that we met Shoei and uh Sam, uh who were living in Osaka at the time, uh and kind of starting Japan overseas, um, you know, with the public bath connection as well going on. Uh because I actually remember uh uh borrowing bicycles and Eldon and I and Sam rode our bikes over to Osaka Castle to uh, to visit it uh, when we were on that first trip. So yeah, that was when we met. Uh, and Choe was also a huge connector uh, for, for me and everybody else. Right? Um, the China receives releases, but also just uh, being, I don't know, being this sort of um, person who is in touch with all of these different other people uh, bringing things together. Uh, they, you know, they eventually kind of set up a little recording studio in, in the place because um, her, her mother had a building in Osaka, like a small little building. Uh, and she lived on one floor of it. They eventually set up a studio kind of downstairs. Uh, we had to go upstairs to the roof to shower when we stayed there because mm-hmm. it was an office building, not an apartment building. Uh, but it was, you know, it was this place where people would kind of you know, come together a bit. And uh, you know, through Shoei, uh, kind of where I got to know some of the Boredom's folks a little bit more, um, and through David, David Hawkins. Um, a nice coincidence, I, I guess, was uh, on that very first trip to Japan with Eldon and Torture Chorus, uh, the last night we were staying there, um, Eldon and I stayed with Mayuko and Hiroshi from CCCC. Uh, and they live out in, in Yokohama, so about a half-hour train ride from Tokyo Central. Uh, but that last night, the Boredoms were playing a record release show for Pop Tatari. Um, and thanks to I, either Shoei or David, uh, we got uh, free tickets to it. Uh, but uh, Mayuko and Hiroshi didn't have the tickets and weren't planning on going to Tokyo. So uh, we had Mayuko, Eldon and I had Mayuko draw us a little map from Shibuya Station to where the show was. It was not too far from there mm-hmm. uh, and kind of told us which train to take. And, and we were like, let's see. Let's see if we get horribly lost and no one sees us ever again or if we can find this place. <laughs> um, and we, we managed to find it. Uh, and it was, uh, there are about probably about 500 people at the show, maybe. It was in a relatively big place uh, called Shibuya On Air. Uh, And it was one of their Japan shows at the time with Godmama in the big costume behind the band on the stage. And the the audience was going crazy. And it was their their Warner Brothers debut album, right? (laughs) So it was this big deal. Um, And it was amazing. So it was just one of those, like, the night we're 
the night before we leave, the show happens to be there. We're going to do our damnedest to, to try to get there. <laughs> and we managed to find our way back to my place too. So <laughs> very successful. Yeah. <laughs> it was before I knew any Japanese really. So. Do you still have that map? Oh, wow. I don't know. I do still have the uh, little promo CD of Pop Tatari that I had all the members sign for me. <laughs> wow. So. That's awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah, after that, uh, yeah, the, the boredoms were all just connected to everything in the world, right, over, over there. So, you know, we had Omoida Hatoba come over here and play um, and Grind Orchestra and just all the, you know, these bands that sort of came from the boredoms. And we talked to David about a lot of those connect David Hopkins, yeah. of course, about uh, that was a great show. Yeah. What a, what a, what a fascinating guy. When did you, when did you meet him? Probably very early on. Right. I would assume early, or at least we're in contact early on. Yeah. I was writing to him in probably 1990, uh, around then and, uh, started buying some records from him because he, he, both he and Shoei, uh, from Japan overseas would kind of you know, pick up, interesting releases happening over there and you know you could order the mail order um so i got some a uh, bunch of stuff from them uh, and then obviously all the public bath releases were essential so i had to get all those singles and then i'll get all of those that they were putting out um and uh that very first trip we went uh, i went on over there you know we connected with david uh, in osaka we, we were actually sitting in a uh sitting in a cafe in Osaka before, before playing our show there, um, talking to David and this, this guy wanders over, um, and, uh, starts asking us in total American English, if we knew where, uh, this club particular club was, you know, David knew where it was. So he was giving the guy directions and everything and saying, you know, what, what are you looking for it for? And it turned out it was Money Mark from the Beastie Boys. And that's where the Beastie Boys were playing that night. And he got <laughs> lost. <laughs> and we're like, damn it. We're playing a show too. Or else we could go see that too in, in Osaka. And that would be great. Oh, that oh been my insane. God. So weird small world. <laughs> that's so awesome. But yeah, that just this, it's such a, you know, what an exciting time. And I just feel all the connections that you were making, you know, between what you were doing and, and then subterranean and Eldon and all the radio shows. I mean, it was just felt like it was this coalescing of so yeah. many different people and everybody together. being open to things like even, even in your magazine, putting out, you know, everyone's address, people just yeah. let it out there and were willing to communicate with anybody. It was, it was almost the goal of the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Is to, to connect, right? You know, you're, you're, you're recording this stuff and you know, you're, you're recording this weird noise and, you know, what are there maybe a thousand people in the world who are really going to get it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the goal is to find those thousand people. Uh, and, you know, you want to connect with them. You want to get the stuff out there and you want to help them get their stuff out there too. You know, I, I started out trading tapes with, uh, with people like, Debbie from Master Slave Relationship and you know, sending stuff to Ron Lassard and, you know, all these people in Europe and starting in, then in Japan. Um, and it was, it was just all about, you know, finding the, the other people in the tribe. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, one, one of the things I mentioned, I think in, in the zine at one point is that a lot of the shows in Japan were very mixed 
sounds. You'd have a noise band, you'd have a punk band, you'd have an improv band, you know, whatever. And so you'd have, you know, what would sound very strange to, to maybe a lot of American concert goers, you know, you go and you'd see, uh, you know, the ruins playing with Amoida Hatova, playing with Zeni Geva, playing with, you know, a noise band. Uh, and that was all fine. That's, you know, you, you go out to see stuff. You, you don't go out to, to just see noise. And, and I don't, don't care about anything that isn't noise. Yeah, sure, some, some people feel that way, but, you know, they, they can go smoke during another band if they don't like it. But you're bringing these people together because they're in an, in an underground together, right? Not because they sound like each other. That's And that's mm-hmm. something that we talk about a lot and yeah. something that's so important to us. We were looking at some old flyers of shows that you were a part of or, or put together. So much variety. Like, and that's for us, is it's it's about the underground. It's not mm-hmm. about genre. So when you see, I think, yeah. what was the one show we saw a flyer? It was like Steel Pole, Bathtub, and... Uh, I, maybe it was a Japanese noise. I can't remember. We were looking at it before the thing, was but it was one of those where it's like, or something? Yeah, it's like a, a, yeah. You know, a heavy, noisy rock band with yeah. uh, maybe a solo noise, straight noise thing with maybe a psych type thing. And then the connection is that is the underground is not just genre. I mean, you know, sure. Sometimes a, a nice, just full noise show is, great. is appropriate, but. To, to me, the exciting shows are when you can combine all this stuff, and I and I I see even even with the label, I mean, putting out stuff, everything from you know you you know stuff like Mel Banana or Space mm-hmm. Streakings and Trance and this, and just mixing this all together, and the the, the overarching thing is is the underground. I- I like I, you maybe think like talking about the tribe. It's like it's the tribe that's not geographical. It's completely just being um, insane mentally. And <laughs> open yes. in open a great and, way. <laughs> open and insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've uh, I've gone to Japan and you know wandered around and met people you know who I knew remotely through doing music and and doing noise and sound gone to London and you know, met up with people over there doing things, gone to Amsterdam and visited Stahlplatz and yeah. you know, hung out with them, gone to, to Paris and visited Odd Size Records when, when Laurent was doing his thing. It's just all of these people around the world you know, who are, are working together, really, just from, from different places. That, that show that you met, mentioned with uh, Steel Ball Bathtub is actually a, a really great example because that was night three of the uh sorry night two of the kingdom of noise festival Mm -hmm. uh that elton and i put together and that was at a a pretty big uh house concert house here in san francisco uh called the great american music hall oh that place is i've never been but i mean i've seen flyers i saw neurosis there uh last decade Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Balcony going around uh, the the second floor, uh, and it's I'm not sure what the capacity is. It's probably about 800. Uh, so it's a totally ridiculous place to do a noise show, right? Uh, but uh, the guys in Steel Pole Bathtub uh, said, "Well, I, I think we could get them to agree if if we headline there that we could do a night there." Um, so I think, it was, as I remember, it was their idea. That's okay. um, because they were fans. Um, and so 
that was Steel Pole Bathtub headlining with Borby Namagus, Mazona, and Solmania. Yes. Oh, that show sounds uh, sick. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it was it, one of the really fun stories about that show, too, is we we showed up for sound check and we walked in uh, and Mazo looked around and looked at the size of the place. And he turned to me and said, uh, can we go to a music store? And I said, well, well, what for? What do you need? He said, I need a wireless mic. Like, oh, I think I, I think I see what you're getting at here. Yeah. So we, we so we drove over to Guitar Center, bought a wireless mic, went back there. He, you know, he took his stuff apart, set, set it up. Um, and so when when his set started, he was on stage. Um, and you know, it's Masana, right? His set was a total of like seven minutes. Right. Uh, it, it starts, and he immediately jumps off the stage. It's like a five foot high stage in that right. place jumps off the stage and just starts running at full speed through the audience, screaming and shaking his, you know, the, the coin, the coin canister <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. And with the wireless mics, there's just noise all around this huge hall as he's <sighs> running through it. Uh, and it was genius. Wow. <laughs> it was just wonderful. <laughs> that was also the show where Borby Magus was playing so loudly that, uh, uh, one of the sax players was using, uh, my friend's amplifier and he, it caught fire. Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> like smoke a... just started pouring out of the uh, amp during the oh, show. Wow. It was actually pretty cool. Is what? that the loudest show you've ever seen? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind for loudest show actually was Swans in Detroit in 1986. So people oh. say that people say those. Are, I mean, people <laughs> say the, even current Swans, mm-hmm. but hearing from the, some of those old shows just sound like they were just absolutely brutal yeah that was the children of god tour uh, and uh i saw that at saint andrew's hall in in detroit and the nice thing is that saint andrew's is the main hall and then this kind of foyer where the you know the merch gets set up and everything so i i I fully admit that i spent a lot of the show out in the foyer slightly around the corner uh, it actually sounded better there after the sound could dissipate a little bit too. But then I'd go in and get blasted for a while and come back out. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, other, other loud shows. I mean, a couple of the shows at uh, Cyclone and Seven Hertz that like Scott Generic and uh, Scott Arford and all were setting up were, were, were pretty up there. Uh, the CCCC show at uh, Cyclone was, was pretty crazy loud. That was great. Yeah, seven hertz sounds like it was um, a loud experience at times. Randy, it, Randy, and Scott have talked about their um, the infrasound show there. That, yes. Oh, sure. A gut jiggler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a gut jiggler. I like that. <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Francisco Lopez at the lab one time was pretty pretty loud. Um, because I think actually Scott Generic was to blame for that too, because he brought his PA, set it up as a quad system around the room, and everybody sat in a circle in the middle. So wow. the sound was like coming at you from all sides. Wow. Um, and it was pitch black. So you, you couldn't see anything. It was just the sound and the feel of the sound. Oh. That'd be wild. Were you in the middle? Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> we were we all, need to know, you know exactly we were, where we were you were standing. Right nope. yeah. We need to know the yeah. exact spot. Of, Your memory yeah. is so impressive, yeah, by yeah, the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. please. Oh when my we God. start having shows again, I'm going to need some more pitch black shows, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a nice way to go. It, it really mm-hmm. is. I think I've only but seen yeah. John Duncan 
do it. I can't. I don't remember any other pitch black shows. Have you guys seen any other fully blacked out shows? I don't. Nothing think intentional. So uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, if it was, it would have been like in the middle of the set. At, Oops! All the lights died, or someone yeah. turned out the lights yeah. in some basement or something. Yeah. But I can't yep. think of a specific show that was meant to be that that way. Yeah, off I, remember the top rhythm, of my head. I remember a rhythm and noise show. That, where that happened accidentally halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, speaking of pitch black makes me think of flickering lights. And I, I this is only for my own curiosity. Uh, behind you, <laughs> I see a dream machine, which uh, you talked about it the is. importance of research. And of course, that was my sort of entryway into a deeper understanding of that world. And is that the one that came with the uh, Halfler Trio Temple of Psychic Youth LP? It's not. I, I have that one. Um, but that one I needed to set up on my own turntable, uh, and kind of rig a light over it. And it was, uh, it, it was always sort of like, you know, janky. Uh, so then sometime in the early nineties, um, John Ace Nile down in LA was making beats, uh, and selling them. Uh, so I bought one from him and you know, had it, had it shipped up here. Uh, and it's much nicer. It's just a nice black box and with the, the light built into the middle. So it's much more functional and kind of prettier. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, but I remember uh, there was a show here. It was it was when Auricular Records was, was really busy and, and operating. So it was probably around 93 um, when uh, the Halfway Trio uh, did a show uh, at the Kennel Club. And then the next night, uh, he did a, kind of this presentation, um, a, a talk about uh, the history of the Dream Machine and similar kinds of uh, you know, non uh, non medicinal uh, consciousness changing mm-hmm. things, uh, and it was in this cool little place in the Lower Haight not very large so there are probably like 20 people there but he had had everybody they knew in san francisco bring the dream machine if they had one and set it up and they were just running the entire time as he was talking so there were like i don't know 10 dream machines just around this space all wow. running and they're all at different speeds and everything too so it was just really kind of disorienting but it was it was fun and it was really interesting um, mckenzie did a really nice uh, nice Talk about that stuff. Wow. Wow. That sounds like an incredible show. Yeah. It does. You should talk to, uh, talk to Das, uh, cause he, he and Alan set that up and, uh, you know, Das, they also brought like Soviet France over, uh, we were doing a bunch of shows at the kennel club for a while, which is a pretty big place. I think that they had a capacity of like 500 or so, but the, uh, the owner of the club and, uh, and the manager were both super cool. And if they had a, you know, if they had a night available when there wasn't a big show, they were happy to have something unusual proposed wow. and, and make it possible. So uh, Eldon and I set up the first Zinegeva show here in San Francisco uh, at the Connor Club. Thanks to that, it was uh, painting or Neurosis opening for Zenigeva and paintings. Wow, what a cool show! It was great. Uh, and I had no idea who Neurosis was at the time because, as, as I understand, that was their first show in San Francisco. Uh, and that was Eldon's connection, uh, South Bay kind of, you know, grindcore connection. Um, you know, we, uh, 
Zinegeva and paintings were touring together. Um, yeah, we needed someone else and, and he knew of Neurosis. So that's actually how I met those guys. An awesome show. Yeah, it was really, really great. Obviously, we talked about survival research laboratories, but uh, interactions with crash worship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it, around 91 or so, uh, I was getting really interested in um, uh, the importance of rhythm in sound. Uh, and so even uh, on in the ancient history trance CD, uh, you can hear a, a section of one of those shows. It's primarily percussion. And there was actually a set of uh, bongos with a contact mic through a bunch of effects. Nice. <laughs> Easy to carry. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was putting together the uh, Arrhythmia CD. Um, and the idea there was experimental rhythm, rhythmic music, right? Uh, and I had been hearing about this band called Crash Worship from Southern California. People were talking about them, and I uh, stumbled actually on uh, one of the 12-inch releases uh, at the Rough Trade record store in, in The Hate uh, and picked that up and then found one of the cassettes as well. Uh, so I, I wrote to them and uh, you know, talked to them about the Arrhythmia CD, but then also was wondering what else they were up to. Uh, and they they were doing some shows and stuff, but that was about it. Uh, so, you know, having heard what I had heard, uh, I said, well, you know, I'd love to put out a CD of yours. And they came back and said, well, you know, we could we could try to record it this way, or you know, do you have money for to to pay for a studio and uh, to record it? And I, I didn't. Uh, but then we decided let's do a live recording. Um, there was a warehouse here in San Francisco called Commotion, uh, in kind of the, the edge of the mission. And, uh, it was a cooperative. They had a kind of a big room where they did shows and then a small room to the side where they had an eight track studio set up. Uh, so we said, let's, let's set up a show there. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll get it recorded there. You can take the tapes home and then you can mix those and, you know, we'll actually get a live multi-track recording. Uh, so, so that's what we did. Um, I hadn't actually seen the band live at that point, so I didn't quite realize how uh, incredibly anarchic the show was going to be. Um, you know, it's, I want to say commotion was probably, the live space was probably a 40 foot by 40 foot square space, uh, kind of two story warehouse, uh, back of a warehouse space with a stage at one end. Uh, and so if you imagine that with no lights, just fire and drums and a crowd in there, so many people crammed in that the walls are wet from the sweat and the fire and everything. Uh, and we're trying to record this thing. <laughs> it, it actually worked out great uh, as it turned out. Uh, and that's the Espontaneo CD that I put out. Uh, but yeah, if I if I'd known what the show was going to look like, I probably wouldn't have thought that a live recording was a good idea anymore. <laughs> well, had you worked uh, with SRL at this great. point? Yes. So yeah. even even after being involved with SRL, the chaos of a crash worship show was uh, another level. The difference was, at least in that case, and in the case of a lot of the shows, the difference is that uh, SRL generally took place outdoors. 
Uh, <clears throat> so, like, yes, at the at the show under the freeway, the pianos that they had strapped in, in a stack around the freeway pillar did get hot enough to crack the pillar. But it was outdoors, at least. So if it got too bad, we could just run for it. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, the the Crash Rush show was in this small warehouse um, that was not, strictly speaking, legal because there was only one exit. Uh, Yeah, why did it not set off the sprinkler system? I probably was this one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Tara, that's a funny question. I'm okay. going to go ahead and just say there wasn't a. You think I'm there wasn't? just going to guess that there was not one. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think well, I can guarantee fortunately. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I mean, uh, I'll say that, you know, Crash Rush did lots and lots of shows, all of them with fire, all of them with chaos, uh, and they always had it under control. Uh, it looked like it wasn't. Uh, and probably sometimes it, it actually wasn't, but it was always under enough control, let's say. Uh, so I saw a lot of crash ocean shows over the years. Um, and they were, no question, some of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. They were amazing. Um, and they they always had just the right line between, like, this is about to turn into uh, the, the biggest uh, fire caused disaster in concert history but it never went there uh, so they, they were fantastic yeah uh we we did a couple of albums together uh and the the fire seven inch as well uh and then we're working towards another album with the possibility of a bigger label licensing thing going on uh right at the point where the band kind of couldn't keep it together anymore you know a band is like some weird twisted family that's decided to sort of come together by choice right and sometimes the family doesn't work out but sometimes it does and uh you know in this case everybody just kind of drifted apart a little bit and uh you know simon went on to the extra action marching band and marcus to volk teufel and uh and so on so everybody's out there doing stuff Cool. Thank you for that. Uh, had another question back to subarachnoid space. Uh, how, and this is, uh, well, there, this listener is asking particularly about these things take time and uh, yeah. how much, uh, which they said, by the way, is one of their favorite records of all time. <laughs> uh, how awesome. much of that material was improvised versus composed? <laughs> yeah. Uh, at that point in the band's evolution, it was still primarily improvised. Uh, that was recorded at KFJC uh, radio station, which which is like a second home to me at this point. Uh, done so many shows and taken so many bands down there. Um, you know, KFJC is another one of those like Bay Area pillars that kept the weirdness going. Yeah, in the pit, this is, right? This, <laughs> this is where the Chaos of the Night CD was recorded. Is that correct? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they do a they do a series of stuff recorded there too called uh Live from the Devil's Triangle. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they did that. Uh or Live in the Pit. Or Live in the and Pit, yeah. I've I've played it myself. <laughs> yeah, well the uh, the campus is, is up in the hills, uh, in, in the down the peninsula. And so uh the live the room that they use for live mics is actually downstairs from kind of the rest of the station area. So it is kind of like a pit. It's a nice pit. 
but the uh, these things take time. Yeah, we went down there, and we at that point we had what we thought of as kind of song nuggets, I guess, uh, pieces that that we would start with or end with. And so if someone started kind of moving into one of them, we would all kind of hear that and go, oh, okay, we're doing that thing. And so we could use that to steer the, the improv a bit. Um, and that's, that was some of my favorite moments uh, with the band because that was enough flexibility that things remained interesting, uh, but we had some, some things to keep into so that we wouldn't get lost and drift off into being boring because uh, the the trick with improv right is you know, knowing when to quit sort of <laughs> so we would use those things to steer ourselves so on, on that album we had some of those but uh that was an interesting one because we we played it and then we all sort of went outside and we're hanging out talking about it and we all kind of thought you know what that kind of sucked that, that, it didn't really work it didn't didn't feel right, uh, but we'd recorded it on uh, on an ADAP uh, at the studio that they had set up. So took the tapes back and and listened through it and realized I don't know what we were hearing at the time, but this is actually good. <laughs> so it's really unusual for that to happen. Usually, if it's good, we we feel it. You know, we we knew it, um, and that one was was a surprise. Uh, where it really did come together, and obviously you know, it came together well enough that we all listened to it. But shit, let's let's release that. Yeah. So yeah, that was one of the ones from uh, from Relapse release. Great. I think that wraps up my end of uh, these are patron questions that came in. Uh, well, yeah, I guess uh, someone was curious if Matt from Relapse had any involvement in the Japanese American Noise Treaty, or if that was all Bill's thing, and uh, if you. <laughs> Did you deal with the art and layout of that compilation as well, or was that their art department? That was pretty much their art department, um, just kind of working working out some ideas. Uh, once we came up with the, the noise treaty thing, as I recall, they, they sort of you know, immediately thought, well, you know, what, what if we do the two flags and we do the hands, um, and then they put that together. Uh, the At the time, they were doing a lot of packaging in that sort of trifold kind of vein uh, for a lot of their compilations. Um, they, had, they had double fold and trifold ones uh, that they released label comps on and, and so forth. And so I think they, they went for that style and so we could have the fold out. Um, Matt's involvement at that point was more uh, almost kind of on the label management side of things. I think he was he was the organized one, and Bill was kind of the chaotic one. <laughs> For the most part, I was dealing with Bill on that one. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, he was he was just definitely more of the noise head, and Matt was more of the metal head on the label. Was there anything that uh, didn't make it, or that you didn't hear back from until after the comp was was full? I don't remember. You know, um, I mean, thinking about it some of the, the people that I'd been in touch with at the time who didn't make it on, uh, who stand out to me are of course, no, but he never considered what he was doing to be noise. Uh, so I don't honestly remember whether that was, uh, him feeling like, you know, no, it wasn't, 
you know, wasn't the right thing for him or, or what. Um, dissecting table would have been nice to include. Um, you know, I included him on the, the first arrhythmia CD and we'd written back and forth a lot uh, over the years then. And he hadn't, um, he hadn't had a uh, release on relapse yet at that point, right? Oh, no. So no. it would have, <laughs> I mean, later, of course, he would would have uh, stuff on the label. So it would have, it would have yeah. fit well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, we did, we did pretty well. Uh, I was very happy to have Diesel Guitar on there. Um, and obviously, Moan Brutes. You know, the, the funny thing is now looking at that, like, who's gone? Right, Moon Brutes. Oh yeah, Ob, Ob, yeah. O- MSBR. Taint. Like it's it's weird. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. The there is the warning, the real extensive warning in that. Are you aware of that? Did they ever have any problems? Is did pe- like because this would have come out after venereology and a few others. Were were you aware of? Was there any actual complaints about the the volume of of the CDs? Because that's, that's got the real extensive mm-hmm. warning in there. It does. I I don't remember hearing about anything yeah, specifically. Yeah. No. Um, they did. I don't know who was actually doing the, the Glass Masters for their CDs at the time. But they they legitimately did manage to get a hookup that mastered their CDs louder than any other damn thing I've ever come across. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there is that, you know, you, you put in a normal CD, even one that's been sort of, you know, modern mastered for radio where it's just crammed to hell and it doesn't have any dynamics anymore. Uh, and, and the relapse stuff is still going to be louder. I don't know yeah. how they did it, honestly. Do you have any intentions of collecting the magazine and maybe doing a reissue exactly. with all four issues. I, I have thought two okay. through four are hard to find. Yeah, yeah, we found one online <laughs> through your website, but oh, other online. than that, yeah. okay. but I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But other than that, I've never seen it. I, I don't, I don't have a physical copy, and I would. Yeah, we were trying to find somebody who has one. Yeah, I think I only printed five hundred of the first issue, maybe, uh, and then I did like fifteen hundred of the others, maybe two thousand of, of one of them. Uh, but that was about it. Uh, <clears throat> I, I had thought about trying to um, trying to republish them uh, in a book, just collect yeah. all four of them into a yeah. book, right? Uh, I I can't use like I, I don't have the original files in a usable format oh, anymore. Right, right. So it'd be a matter of doing a high quality scan of the magazines. They're all you know, more or less the same size. So if I did an eight and a half by eleven or you know nine by twelve book uh bound of them i think it would work uh it would just be a matter of you know paying to have really good scans done uh so i've definitely thought about it um it's just a matter of kind of you know, getting the time and you know deciding to go for it well we're here to say that that would be a really really cool yeah thing to do and we'll we'll link the first issue on our show page because it is cool. really, really nice slice of history. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is, it's different from Banana Fish. It's mm-hmm. different. For, it's, oh, yeah. it's got mm-hmm. its own thing and it's as important looking back at that. I mean. Oh, and d- we didn't mention what Ongaku Otaku means. Oh, yeah. 
<clears throat> I, mean, I, I thought of it as music fanatic. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or music maniac, if you yeah. want to go with the alliteration again. Um, <laughs> you know, because otaku is, is sort of, in, in Japan, it's, it's a bit of an insult, sort of, um, or at least it very easily can be. Uh, but not if you're, if you are a fanatic, right? Not if you are, you know, really, really in, into something. Um, and, you know, I used ongaku for, for music because I wanted to do you know, a wider scope of, of things and not just, you know, experimental stuff. So you know, I had like, you know, some of the uh, indie uh, kind of rock and punk bands in there as well, you know, represented, uh, you know, because I wanted to have, uh, I wanted it to be kind of a, you know, a jump into the pool of what's happening in indie music and at clubs and in record stores and everything over there, you know, for, for people who couldn't go over there. It yeah. was, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, and I, I kind of stopped doing that. And at the same time that I kind of stopped the label activity too, because I was at, eventually in the like late nineties, I was, you know, working a full-time job and doing the magazine and running the label and in subarachnoid space and, and trying to make that all work. And it didn't, wow. <laughs> you know, it was, it was not practical uh, to try to do all of that. Um, and I felt like, you know, the, those four issues of the magazine had, had done pretty well. So. Heck yes. Well, um, we will put up a link so you can check that out. Also, <laughs> We will put up a link to Mason's Bandcamp because he's been putting some cool old stuff up there. You can hear mm-hmm. some of those very first trance tapes, some of the stuff we yeah. were referencing earlier that has yeah. more structured stuff, but as well as just the full-on noise stuff. You get a little bit of everything, and I assume you're just going to keep adding to that as you, you know, just probably as you find stuff, as you... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to have yeah, a yeah. couple and links up yeah. in the description here because we're going to have to link to the new Trance Ancient History CD on mm-hmm. Tronics and Helicopter. And also, uh, Mason, one thing we didn't talk about is that you uh, were archiving flyers you have online yeah. for a stretch. So right, there's a big right. flyer we, archive, yeah. and we should make sure to link to that, too. That's awesome. Yeah, that was that was fun. And I actually found another folder uh, with more of them, especially a bunch of them that I brought back from Japan. Awesome. So, I'll uh, I'll scan a lot of those because uh, uh, at, at the clubs over there uh, and in the record stores there'd always be stacks of, of flyers you know just like anywhere um, except that you know, honestly they they did a nicer job with their flyers than most folks over here do <laughs> uh, so it's beautiful flyers you know, both for releases and for upcoming shows so I would just grab those and stuff them in my bag and bring them home so I kind of collected up this, this stack of flyers from different clubs over there it's an invaluable resource to be able to go back and look at that stuff. You know, this is history. We're we're archaeologists. That's what, this is what this is all about. And so to get a chance to talk to someone like you who was there, who was just in it. Such a part in connecting people. It's a, it's a true honor for us. So So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much Mm -hmm. for being here. And yeah, as we've said a couple of times today, Trance Ancient History CD is out, so go grab that. It's phenomenal. Like we said, we've been listening to it yep. for a, a good month or two here already. So Beautifully designed, go. too, with a, a nod to a Gross, I feel, in that design by John Weiss. It looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah, he did an awesome job. I, I just sent him the text and the photo for the front and said, if you make this mysterious, it might be kind of cool looking. And yeah, I knew that he could do an awesome job. Great. 
it's 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 actually super nice to be able to do that because I've um, I'm accustomed to doing my own design uh, almost all the time, um, and uh, you know, knowing that I just don't have to worry about it being beautiful, it's uh, it's really really nice. <laughs> awesome, Absolutely. awesome. Thank you so much, Mason. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, such Likewise. a pleasure. Awesome. We'll talk soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. And thank you to our new patrons, Daniel Fryer, Colin Deesh, Max SK, William Hayward, Kraken Fury, Themis, Property Materials, Andrew Grant, Gabe Savage, Kenny Humphreys, Grant Jackson, Soy Fan Del Dark, Jason Yokim, Jonathan Fatchin, Scott Bayard, Ron Morelli, Sean Cohen, Matt, Brad Davis, and Benjamin Gomez. Thank you also very much for your support. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.